digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I'm your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2, the deuce. Howdy. No booze? I'm at work. Why? On a Sunday? I, yeah, it's just, you can't drink. It just sucks. Don't work, people. Let me just encourage everybody to not work. It is a weary adventure. <laughs> you can't drink while you do your podcast, but we're all in that boat, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. How are you, T? Lovely. How are y'all? Pretty good. We are just in the process of moving. So I will now introduce our storyteller, who's also in the process of moving, Mr. Will the Thrill. First, I say greetings and salutations. And second, if one of us was moving and one of us wasn't, that would be a bigger conversation, I think. I don't think we would be having this podcast. Probably not. <laughs> we would. It would just be much more contentious. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we are in the process of moving. We'll be in our new home, fingers crossed, by next Tuesday or Wednesday. So, Give or take, yeah. I'm trying to imagine the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast if one of you was moving and the other one wasn't, what that, that would sound like. It'd be like, and now our storyteller, Will the Thrill, up your skank. <laughs> I don't think Will would ever call me a skank. Who did I call a skank? I don't think you ever You just you, called her that. Yeah, you called me a skank. We have it on tape. No, I didn't. <laughs> you, yeah, you did. You said up your skank. I, yep. Uh, what? Yep. Yeah, you actually did. I heard it. <laughs> I, I don't know um, what to say. <laughs> all right. Well, we do have to start out with three pieces of really crappy news. We took a little break and we're going to try to get these episodes out, but it is really hard with us moving. So we're going to try to get this process done as quickly as possible. Fingers crossed we can get you guys out an episode next week. I know this one's coming late and the one next week might not come until the week after. So we're going to try to get this done, but you know, it's really hard moving. And so we really appreciate you guys at home still tuning in when we put these episodes out, but in the time since we did our slap nuts and we did this episode, we lost three really amazing artists. The first one was Loretta Lynn. Yeah, jeez. I think T would like to speak on Loretta Lynn. I think all that needs to be said is that multiple country artists tweeted, England lost their queen and now we lost ours. Yeah, I actually saw a cartoon that said, I was the queen of a country and Loretta Lynn has her guitar and she says, well, I was the queen of country. <laughs> and, you know. What an amazing... Just life, career, life story, <laughs> just kind of telling anybody that didn't like the way she did things to kiss her ass. I believe she was one of the ones we mentioned for the Mount Rushmore of country women. I think she came up a few times. I believe she came up on all yeah, our lists. Pretty much, yeah. Well, if she's not on your list, then not, your list sucks. But um, yeah. she was just very independent, did things the way she wanted to. If people didn't like it, they could pretty much kiss her ass. <laughs> um, had multiple songs banned from country radio for content they weren't comfortable with at the time you know about the pill and having sex and all kind of fun stuff like that and then much like johnny cash had a late career resurgence thanks to an odd collaboration with jack white of all people yeah for the van Leer rose album which was amazing yeah she is true royalty and she is going to be missed the other one which really hit me hard was that we lost angela lansbury yeah and I think everybody, every one of our listeners 
knows how much I loved Angela and like the fool I made myself when I met her, but she could not have been in that one little moment that I was able to have with her. She was one of the sweetest, kindest people that I've ever met in the industry. She was truly a class act. She just, she was born in 1925. So she was almost hundred. She's 96. She had been in television and movies spanning decades. It can't be understated like how long her career was that she actually started her career in 1944. So she started her career in a war and post-war era. And her last feature film is going to be the follow-up to Knives Out. Oh, really? Yeah. She was also in Mary Poppins Returns. She was the balloon lady. Of course, she's Mrs. Potts. Of course, she's Jessica Fletcher. She was a beauty. She was a, a singer. She was a songster. She was a triple threat. She was amazing. And I'm going to miss her. And I love her dearly. Yes. And technically, she was Dame, correct? Yeah, she is an American Brit. She's American British. But she can still get an OBE, correct? Yes. Yeah. And she was. But yeah, that one actually made me cry a little. I'm just go ahead and say it. it made me cry a little. And then the third one was something that actually was close to me because it's my time on the show, which I'm still on. But Willie Spence, American Idol runner-up 2019, passed away in a car accident. And so for the entire Idol family, that was a really hard pill to swallow. So our thoughts and our prayers go out to Willie Spence's family as Angela Lansbury, I know her daughter, and then Loretta Lynn's family. So we just hope the best for you guys. This was a hard week. This is a very hard week. Indeed. Why don't we hear from our sponsor real quick, and then let's hop into part five of Lane Staley. Absolutely. And like you said, LD, it's been a tough week. Tough weeks happen. And when they do, sometimes you need a little help because everyone, no matter where they are in life, can use a little help. We spend all this time working on the things that we are convinced are the most important, gaining you know, progress at work, losing weight. And these are all good things, but let me ask you, when was the last time you took some time to focus on your mental health? Mental well-being is overlooked by a lot of people. I know because I was one of them. I just kept feeling like something was off. I needed somebody to talk to. I was isolated. I felt alone. And then everything around me started suffering because of that. My relationships, my work, my passions. And what I found out was that I just needed someone I could connect with. And that's where, for me, BetterHelp changed the game. BetterHelp allows you to get the specific help you need for whatever is eating away at you. They will ask you target questions to set you up with the right therapist to talk about anything you want. Good week, bad week, ups, downs. You can cover any topic you wish. BetterHelp will also set you up with a counselor from the comfort of your home. That's right. Through the BetterHelp platform, you can be connected to a licensed therapist that you can see from your home in under 48 hours. It's amazing. No more driving to the office, no more parking, no more traffic. You can do it from your home, which is great. We're so glad that BetterHelp was a positive impact in my life. And they are a sponsor of our show. And that's why we have a special offer to Rock and Roll Heaven listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com with our code, which is rockheaven. So again, that's betterhelp.com. And our code is rockheaven to get 10% off of your first month of professional therapy. Thanks again to BetterHelp for helping me out and sponsoring this podcast and everything that you do. Better help, better life. All right. And I think I kind of spoiled it in the beginning, but who are we going to be talking about today? We are continuing to dive into the life, career, and unfortunate passing of one of the greats of the grunge era, Lane Staley. 
and this is going to be the fifth installment where we're going to start covering, I think, what most people know Lane and Alice in Chains for. I know that, you know, in our previous episodes kind of been like, well, it sounds like Alice, we're not there yet, you know, and some songs had mixed reception, we'll call it, but uh, now we're getting into the meat of it. This is the sort of core of the grunge years where Alice in Chains was really prevalent, so let's dive in. Before we do, I do have some warnings I want to give out. Of course, language. These boys love to curse, and they're going to do that several times in interviews and material that I'm covering here, so just know that I will do my best to be censored, but sometimes I'm going to keep an original quote intact for the sake of the flavor of it, if you will. And again, they did love some naughty words, we'll call it. Also, this does deal heavily with addiction. I know this has been kind of a through line through this series, but it really gets down to it in this one. In the last episode, we talked about the passing of Andrew Wood. We're also going to go deeper into Lane's battle with addiction. So going back to the topic of our sponsor, BetterHelp, please reach out if you are suffering or if you know someone suffering from addiction. It is an absolute monster and it needs to be treated. So please know that we are approaching this with respect and reverence and coming from a place of understanding what this individual went through who was battling addiction. So let's get back into it, shall we? Now, <clears throat> when we last left off, Lane and Allison Chains were on track to set several early career milestones. They released Facelift in 1991. They were starting to tour. And as you know, they were connected to Susan Silver. Again, she's a bit of a polarizing figure in the grunge world, but she knew people and she could get them hooked up. So one of the things she did when they were touring on the heels of the facelift release was get them set up with the crew that actually worked with Soundgarden. Also appropriate because as we know, Susan was romantically involved with Chris Cornell. From the jump, there was immediate friction between Alice in Chains and the crew from Soundgarden. According to Randy Biro, who is one of their guitar techs, he said, I didn't like the band at all at first. He had heard the album, he thought it was good, and his concern was, quote, this band can't do this shit live, end quote. The problem was he thought that Facelift had a lot of studio work, he thought there was a lot of things going on in the booth, and he's like, there's no way they're going to play live with this, this is going to be a mess. Now, I'm going to do a little game with you all. Okay, I'm going to read your minds. We ready for this? Do it. I want you to think. Early grunge era. 1991, 1992. You're going to put Alice in Chains on the road. I'm actually not going to do that. I'm 12 and I'm listening to Hanson. So... Okay. So TJ, bear with me on this one. It's early 90s. You're going to put Alice in Chains out on the road. So just, again, hold the name of that band in your mind who you're going to pair them with. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Is it extreme? Because that's who they toured with. Alice in Chains got paired up with Extreme. Wow. The pairing was called, quote, terrible, end quote. <laughs> According to those involved, which included the techs and the people who booked it, the Extreme fans didn't want to hear Alice in Chains. Alice in Chains fans didn't want to hear Extreme. It was just a mess. Wow. And Extreme, coming off of the release of their porno graffiti album, they were divas. Let's be honest. They were divas. They were doing some kind of passive aggressive things to Alice in Chains. Like before Alice in Chains would go on, they would lower the PA system. They would like cut lights back. And backstage, they would just be like, well, we're Extreme and who are you? So during an Atlanta show, they actually set up all of Alice in Chains equipment in one portion of the stage and they couldn't move it. And they just got stuck there. And this really laid into Lane's mind, you know, as he thought about this. This is a quote from Lane about that period touring with Extreme. Quote, they refused to move anything and they just say, you're just an opening act. 
And thanks to assholes like that, we've never treated people badly. And as we go on, we're going to see that that is something Lane took very seriously. Now, we know that Lane was a people guy. He was electric on stage. He ended up winning the crowds over. So as they played more shows, Alice actually became more popular than extreme during these live sets. Jimmy Schoaf, who was actually Sean Kinney's drum tech, was quoted as becoming a fan of Neil Diamond because of Lane Staley. Tell me you saw that one coming. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. He said Lane would sing Love on the Rocks perfectly. Pitch perfect. Sounded like Neil. And he said that it actually got him into listening to Neil Diamond. When talking about Lane, he said he made jokes and the guy could sing anything. He made fun of artists, but he could always sing them well. He was an incredible singer, but it was his sense of humor that won people over. The band was constantly, constantly, constantly 24 hours joking around. Now, the tour was laden with some debauchery, as you can imagine. There was actually a show in Denver where a young lady was brought on board the Extreme and Alice in Chains tour bus. TJ, I think you can imagine where this is going. Yeah, I can imagine where it was going. <laughs> yes, and uh, it went to a taping of some graphic acts that the young lady actually called a local show in Dallas to talk about it, and they had to pull the plug on the interview because it was that graphic. So apparently there was a tape that was allegedly, quote, directed by Extreme involving graphic sex acts. So again, I have to say allegedly, I have not seen this tape, I don't know about it, but... Nonetheless, it was something that happened on tour. Then a really interesting pair happened. So we had Extreme, but around the end of, you know, 1990, give or take, uh, again, touring on, uh, at the end of you know, the facelift tour, they actually started touring with Iggy Pop, of all people. So they hooked up with Iggy. A better pairing. They're getting there, yeah. A much better pairing than with Extreme. Yeah, I think the audiences, there's a little more alignment there, I would think. They actually played a Halloween show at the Cat Club, which might be just any other normal show, except for the fact that in attendance that night was a young director named Paul Rockman. Paul was so taken with the band that he actually called Columbia and said, I want to make a music video for these guys. And they let him. I mean, hey, early 90s, what are you going to do? The song, of course, was Man in the Box. And we did play that last time. As we discussed, it is a timeless, timeless rock song. It just always delivers. So Columbia says, sure, you can direct the music video. They put him in touch with Lane and they were on tour at this time. So the conversation started about what kind of video do you want? You know, how does it go? And Lane actually sent a fax to Paul. On the fax were these three lines. I will read them verbatim. Rainy, drippy barn, farm animals, baby with the eyes sewn shut. That's what Lane said he wanted in a video. That's just creepy. Yeah. The baby thing was, of course, right out. So Paul's like, no, we're, that, that's not going to happen. So December, they actually start shooting Man in the Box. And I think, LD, I played this video for you. And TJ, I know you've seen it dozens of times. It was actually shot in Malibu State Park for just under $50,000, which if you had your little calculator out, you would know that is approximately $113,000 a day. Very, very low cost for a video. And for those of you who have seen the video, I have a fun fact. Fun fact! Fun fact! All right, so you all remember in the video, there is a hooded character kind of walking around, right? And then there's a reveal at the end, TJ. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Yeah. 
that hooded figure was actually a guy who was a local parking lot attendant. And the reason Rockman cast him is because he looked like Jesus Christ. So that's how he got the part. But he was a parking lot attendant. They were like, uh, you, you want to be in a video? Sure. So there you go. <laughs> that was one of two videos that would make the rounds on a show that I know I enjoyed. TJ, let me know what you think. Headbangers Ball. Do you remember Headbangers Ball on MTV? Oh, <laughs> yes, I do. actually remember Headbangers Ball, but that started at like 10 o'clock at night. So that was like way yeah. too late for me. It was the late slot. Hey, and Man of the Box was just going crazy on that one. We Die Young also went crazy on that one. And as we mentioned, Facelift did hit number 42 on the Billboard charts, which at the time was unthinkable for a grunge album because a grunge album up to that point didn't even make it out of the top 50. Uh, according to Jerry Cantrell, he said, the video on MTV buzz clip helped us out a lot, and it really helped all the grunge bands as well. The numbers back this up because Facelift, prior to the release of the video, had only sold 40,000 copies. And as we know, it would go on to sell well into the millions. So it was really perpetuated by MTV, and the video would ultimately be nominated for a Best Hard Rock MTV Video Music Award. So good for them. And again, the other one was Sea of Sorrow, going back to 1991. Now, by December of that year, the boys were back in Seattle, and they were actually scheduled to play a show at the Monroe Theater. On this bill, it's very similar to the set list from Hell that we're going to do at the end of the series. It was a then-unknown band called Mookie Blaylock, and as we all know, they go on to be Pearl Jam. It was Chris Cornell, who made appearances not only as Soundgarden, but as Temple of the Dog, because he came out with Eddie. So it's basically AIC, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Temple of the Dog, which is just... I would have loved to be at that show. That would have been unbelievable. Following that performance, the three would actually do a New Year's Eve gig at a local ranch. Fortuitous because that ranch belonged to a filmmaker named Cameron Crowe. Which segues perfectly into the film Singles. So by this point, Crowe was starting to come onto the scene. He had done Say Anything. He was starting to get traction. He was also married, I think you mentioned this, to Nancy Wilson of Heart. Was at the time, yes. At the time, yes. Sadly, the union has not lasted the ages, but yes, at the time. Needless to say, Crowe was working on a script, and he was really impacted by Andrew Wood's passing. And he wanted to somehow steer the script in that direction, incorporate a lot of Seattle-based music into that next project, which would be, of course, singles. Alice Chains is invited to play the show and Cameron Crowe approaches them and says, hey, do you guys want to do some songs for my movie? And they get contracted to do originally only one song, but Alice Chains ends up making about 10 or a dozen songs that could have in theory been part of the singles film. I feel like you've seen the film singles and I think TJ you have, but I don't think LD you have, correct? Don't think so. Okay. TJ, you have that, right? Yes, yes, I have. Yes. Singles was a comedy, romantic comedy, dark romantic comedy. It was basically 20-somethings in Seattle, and it was Bridget Fonda, Campbell Scott, Matt Dillon. I even think Bill Pullman was in it, and Eric Stoltz. I even think Paul Giamatti had a small role, if I'm not mistaken. It's about your relationships in this era. So the film is fine in its own right, but I think what really put on the map was the soundtrack. Holy crap. What a soundtrack. Again, it was just seeped in grunge. It had the Screaming Trees. It had Pearl Jam. It had Chris Cornell, Paul Westerberg, Mud Honey, Soundgarden, and of course, Alice in Chains. And in fact, Alice in Chains would appear in the film. If you remember, those of you who have seen it, there's a scene where Kira Sedgwick goes in to the club and she's kind of making eyes with Campbell Scott and the band performing is Alice in Chains. They're performing their song from Facelift. It ain't like that. 
and it was shot apparently in a warehouse overnight. It was kind of crazy. They converted the whole warehouse into a music club, but they shot this alleged show where Alice in Chains performed, and everyone got a lot of stage time, particularly Jerry and Lane, of course. So I think we're going to do our first song here, which comes from the single soundtrack, but it would actually be reprised on the Dirt album. The title is a bit ironic. When Jerry Cantrell wrote the song, he actually wrote it with Andrew Wood in mind, but he did a little spin on the last name. So I think I'd be remiss if we didn't play from the single soundtrack and from the 1992 Dirt album. That song is Alice in Chains' Wood.
All right, so let's actually like actually open up to LD because I know Alice in Chains is a little newer for you. What are your thoughts? People are going to eat me alive. It's not my cup of tea, but I can understand the artistry and I can respect what they're doing. Up your skank. <sighs> you try to be nice, but then the trolls come out from underneath their bridge <laughs> and it comes out they're related to you. What are your thoughts, Mr. Skank? I think that's you, Will. Oh, am I Mr. Skank? No, okay. no you're Mr. Skank. <laughs> well, no, I mean, if, if he's married to the skank, then he's Mr. Skank. <laughs> they call me Dr. Skank. Good morning. Morning, how, how are you? you? I'm Dr. Dr. Skank. <laughs> Esquire. I think it's a banger. Yeah. It kicks it ass. The thing that, first of all, his voice just pops on that one, mm -hmm. for starters. Secondly, they're in their sweet spot now. That's Alice. The sound is complete. They know who they are, and they're about to go on an amazing tear. And then the other thing is, the harmonies are so atypical of heavy music. Mm -hmm. They're so good, and they add so much atmosphere to me. And we're actually going to get into detail about that when we get to, because remember, this is the, still the single soundtrack. When we get to the Dirt album, we're going to go into all those things, the complexity, the harmonies. And like you said, many would consider that the seminal work of Alice in Chains. It's just a masterpiece. And like you said, Lane's vocals mature. You know, the harmonies are tight. The, the guitar lines are just unbelievable. That was my gateway song to Alice in Chains. Like many, I heard the single soundtrack. I was like, who is this band? You know? And I was all in when I heard Wood. I was like, that's it. I'm doing this. So there you go. I thought I'd throw in a little fun story here. Little fun story here. Little fun story. Little fun story. <laughs> By spring of 1991, the band was actually doing some award shows, including the Northwest Area Music Association Awards. And it was a bit of a lengthy endeavor. Needless to say, Alice in Chains kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed in the lineup. And they were finally pushed to the back because Kenny G refused to move out of the lineup. <laughs> well, listen to what Lane replied. So finally, Alice in Chains takes the stage. It's a long night for everybody. Lane gets up there and says, we're dedicating our series to Kenny G and his flesh flute. So that was his little jab right there. I know. Not for nothing, though, but like Kenny G's appearance in the video for Katy Perry's last Friday night is just stellar. Sorry. It is. I think he had to kind of get over himself again, like steer into it like Michael Bolton did. Yeah. 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 All right. So back to the summer, Alice in Chains would actually go back on tour, this time with a more appropriate pairing, the Clash of the Titans tour. Death Angel actually backed out at the last minute. So the tour included Megadeth, Slayer, Anthrax, and Alice. So that's appropriate. I feel like that fits. In fact, in a later interview, Mike Starr was asked, what was it like to open for these bands? And he gave the best description, which was, he said it was, quote, really smelly, but awesome. <laughs> Just hilarious. It wasn't all fun and games, though. In a 1991 interview with Spin, Jerry actually discussed the band's substance abuse problems. According to Jerry, quote, we were high on coke all the time. In fact, one encounter that was documented was Jerry actually ended up fixating on a wind-up elephant toy for hours, and then he went into a nearby farm with a bottle of champagne and tried to feed it to the horses. So that's one of the things he did under the influence. Should he not have done that? I mean, I think it was frowned upon, but... On what planet does Coke make you just sit and stare at something for hours? I thought that made you like, ah, da, da, da. that's what I would have thought. But he said he was like playing with his wind up toy for hours. It's a very strange, strange thing. I mean, they're probably doing other substances as well. I think that's a safe assumption. 
And, you know, it was a time when unfortunately a lot of musicians, especially in the Seattle area, were overdosing. In fact, the famed bass player for Guns N' Roses, Duff McKagan, wrote a memoir, particularly about this period in music. And he said death by overdose was just happening all the time. His memoir is called It's So Easy, by the way, which is awesome. That's a great song, but we'll talk about that another time. Heroin really became a staple for artists in Seattle in the mid to early 80s. And it just kind of spiraled and kept going through the 90s. You know, and Andrew Wood was a very known casualty of an overdose, but there were many, many artists who were who were passing away in Seattle because, again, with heroin, it was kind of a one shot was bad and, and you were dead. That was it. So there are many accounts that differ about Lane's heroin usage at this point. They believe, though, that it sort of came to a head in 1991 when the band was paired to go on tour with Van Halen. And I know, TJ, you covered Van Halen, and their tours were oh. notorious. Oh, yes. The opulence and the shenanigans were, yeah. Is wow. out of control, yeah. But first of all, what a freaking tour that would have been. I know, right? Oh. And bear in mind, at this point, Alice is still an opening act. They're not headlining yet, which is just crazy. What year? This is 91. 91, yeah, okay. 91. This is like fall, later in 91. I saw Van Halen in 93, and boy, I wish it would have been Alice in Chains instead of Vince Neil's solo project. Oh, is that who opened? Uh, yeah, Alice would have been a better fit. <laughs> now, it's important to note that this time, you know, Lane is having a relationship with Demery, who I must reiterate, Demery Perot, is often accused of introducing Lane and kind of enabling him. Again, a lot of theories debunk this. They were using together, that's true both admitted to that but she unfairly gets painted as again kind of a lady macbeth character that brings lane down uh, he loved her dearly we do know that and she loved him and having a relationship with a musician is obviously quite challenging and depending on who you asked they said that the relationship was fairly open he would go on tour and it was understood that you know he would do his thing and demery would do her thing but it really got to lane at some point when she was actually linked to a singer named Dwayne Bodenheimer, who was performing with a band called the Derelicts in the 90s. And what he said the problem was is that he knew Dwayne, they had played together, they had, you know, worked with each other at different shows, and at no point did it come up that he was dating Demery. So apparently Lane confronts him, and allegedly there may have been a substance involved when he did this confrontation. He said, you should have told me at the first time we met that you were sleeping with my girl. You're not a good person. You're a real piece of shit. And it kind of escalates from there. And this all actually came to head during the single shoot that I mentioned, where they were shooting in the club because Bodenheimer was there. And Lane actually went on to say, and they had to like pull him apart at this point. He said, it should have been you that died instead of Andy Wood. So, wow. Oh, Yeah. Hey, Will, I hate to cut you off, but we do need to take a quick pause for our sponsors. And we're back. Cool. Let's get back to Lane Staley. So Dwayne did have a relationship with Demery. He admitted to that. He was kind of fuzzy on when it started. But again, this really, really gets to Lane. Demery's mother, Kathleen, said that Lane was really having trouble with substances, but also with being famous and sort of one fueled the other. I remember you talking LD in your Cobain series that you did, you know, Kurt didn't like being famous at all. Lane was very similar. Kathleen would actually say Lane hated fame. And he said that a lot of artists at the time related that Cornell, Cobain, they kind of shied away from the spotlight. And once they were in it, people were all over them. In fact, Lane would be out and about 
And people would come up to the street and go, hey, are you Alice in Chains? And he would just look at them. He'd be like, do I look like Alice in Chains? It would really annoy him. Lane would later say in an interview about being famous that it's totally freaking me out. People treat me like an object. I'm not a person anymore. I'm just a commodity to be sold. People don't really know who I am. People grab things from me. That was his quote about being famous. And in fact, he confided in Randy Biro, one of their techs while on tour, and he said, if I had known being in a band was going to be this tough, I would have stayed just dealing weed. That was what Lane said. So moving on from the movie singles here, Lane is looking to make his relationship with Demery more official. So by the close of 1991, he actually proposes to her. He presents her with a traditional Irish clattering. And they are going to say they're going to get married. They don't set a date. Well, hang on, hang on. Before you move on, you got to tell people what the clattering is. Oh, if they, okay. If they don't know. Got it. So for those of you who don't know, a clattering is, I actually have one that was given to me by my grandmother. It is a set of hands clasping a heart. It's traditionally in gold. You cannot buy one for yourself. It has to be gifted, right? It has to be given. Yes. And I think the other stipulation is, if you wear it, I believe on your left hand, no, on the right hand with the heart, towards you your heart is closed but if you turn it the other way you're open and then it ultimately ends up on your left hand when it's love i may have that lore slightly incorrect but it's a very sweet gift i think he fully intended to marry demery he even talked to his former bandmate from sleaze johnny bacolis to be his best man but of course life goes on so as we mentioned alice chains goes out on tour with van halen and yes there are semantics here that we're going to get into. Uh, some are funny and some are not. So we'll start with the lighter side of, of subjects. Sammy Hagar actually solely claimed that he picked the band. He took all the credit for picking Alice in Chains. Is this true? I don't know. But he claims that he hand-selected them and made it happen. The tour was loaded with practical jokes between the two bands. So for one set, Van Halen actually covered the entire stage before Alice in Chains went on with adhesive tape facing up so whenever they would walk they would get stuck on the ground again kind of these are sort of harmless pranks and they're really funny that's the kind of prank that i would pull like the one where nobody <laughs> gets hurt is just mildly inconvenienced and you're just like why would you do that yeah it's just it's just a pain in the butt they would also hire specifically as they called quote unattractive end quote sex workers who they would basically keep backstage. And then when Alice in Chains was on, they would just like kind of let them flood the stage and they'd run out and start dancing and throw everybody off. Again, it's take that for what it's worth. <laughs> You'll love this one. During a performance of Man in the Box, the Van Halen crew actually started one by one coming out on stage and breaking down the band's equipment. So they would like take things away gradually and they'd be like looking around like, what the hell? And it <laughs> all culminated amazing. with one of the techs dressed up as a sheep he was dressed up as a sheep, and he was being chased by another tech who was dressed as Little Bo Peep. So, <laughs> I got just absolutely bonkers stuff. See, this is the part where I can absolutely get on board. It's funny, though. They had sex workers on stage and man in a box. <laughs> yeah. And then they started taking their gear away while dressed as sheep. I mean, who knew? <laughs> their gear. <laughs> Did Alice and Chains go quietly? No, they did not. What they would end up doing is dressing in full drag. And I don't know if you've seen pictures of the guys in Alice in Chains. They do not make attractive ladies. Not in the slightest. And we're not talking like a lot of cover-up. We're talking like ladies' underwear, garter belts. And so they would actually dress in drag and walk out behind the band. So the band couldn't see them, but the audience could. And they would do the famous Van Halen walk. Like, you know, the one in, I believe it's Hot for Teacher. 
they would do the famous Van Halen walk onto the stage in drag and start dancing around and the band wouldn't even know about it. In fact, there was during one set where they said Eddie turned around and saw what was happening and he just completely broke out laughing. Like he could not continue. Uh, just totally shattered the performance, which is quite hilarious. So that's more fun stuff. And of course there was stuff that's not so great. As we know, drugs were a big part of the scene. TJ, you went on at length about what Van Halen did. If it was just Van Halen, it would have been, you know, crazy, but throw an Alice in Chains and it gets even worse. So a lot of people say that Lane didn't really start taking heroin until after Facelift was released. Again, to Jerry's account, they were all doing cocaine. You know, I guess that's just what you did. The music bank, as we mentioned, had a lot of drugs just at the ready. And the theory is that Lane actually ran out of cocaine while on tour and got introduced to heroin. The two prevailing theories are, one, it was Demery who introduced him to heroin. Again, high refuted. There's another that says Mike Starr actually introduced him to heroin. And we're going to get more into that later because it's another highly contended subject. During the Van Halen tour, Starr was actually accused of adding all these names at the last minute to the guest list. So mysterious guests would kind of come and go and no one really knew who they were. He was also accused of scalping tickets to his own show in the parking lot. And somehow these tickets with backstage passes would end up in, shall we say, unsavory hands. So again, people would magically appear backstage. And this eerily coincided around the time people actually started noticing that Lane was high and was on heroin. So is it true that Mike Starr did? We don't know. These are just some of the accounts we have. And again, it's like piecing together a big puzzle. It's bits and pieces from everywhere. However, in a later interview, Starr confessed that the driving force behind these decisions was Lane, and he was sort of acting as Lane's go-to guy. So take that for what it's worth. The truth is between the two of them. In fact, when Facelift first went gold, Lane had a big party, he invited all of his friends over to snort cocaine off of the gold record. He said, it was always a dream of mine. If I ever got a gold record, I was going to do a line of coke off it. And Lane lived up to that when it went gold. You know, I had the same goal. Ah, if only I had a gold record, right? Yeah. So close. Yeah. So this brought Alice in Chains into the gold record club. Another proud member of this club was produced when the 1979 album Semi-Detached Suburban went gold, and that was, of course, for none other than Manfred Mann's Earth Band. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGuinness, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Mann reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. Thank you, Tom. That is our Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference. So when this sort of became more common, the band was kind of trying to circle the wagons. Like, okay, what can we do about this? How can we take care of Lane? You know, this is becoming a concern. So around this time, Lane would make one of his first attempts at rehab. Uh, Again, by the end of his life, it is claimed by his mother that he was in rehab almost like 16 or 17 times. It was a ton. He checks himself in at Susan Silver's behest to the Valley Glen Hospital in Monroe, which unfortunately was the same location that had admitted Andrew Wood just a few years ago. So Lane was trying to get clean. As we know, it's an uphill battle. You know, he was known as the guy from Alice in Chains. That actually didn't do him any favors when he was in therapy. And he actually started writing more. He started to get clean. And a lot of this sort of goes in the back of the mind. And by the end of 91, Alice in Chains is going to go back in the studio. They're going to turn to work. And that's going to be on their next album, Sap. And I feel like Sap gets overlooked a lot. Alice in Chains was looking at a more acoustic type sound. And this was some of the things that came out of the original singles recording. As I mentioned, they had done about a dozen songs for singles. 
two or three of them made the soundtrack, but they had all this acoustic stuff. And Jerry was saying, you know, we had all this acoustic stuff and we're thinking, what the fuck can we do with this? We're this hard rock band, end quote. So under the guidance of a production team from London Bridge Studios, which was Rick Parisher, David Hillis, and Jonathan Plum. Plum was actually a student who got this job as almost like a paid internship to work with Alice in Chains. They decide they're going to go into the studio and they're going to try this new sound out. And this was a chance for Lane and Jerry to get some more material written and also do some of the harmonies, as we know Alice in Chains is famous for. So they're vocally really tuning themselves here. According to John Plum, he said this was an absolute dream come true. Quote, the pay was shit, but I was working with Alice in Chains. He did make a note to say that every time he interacted with Lane, he was the nicest guy he could possibly be. According to Plum, quote, he seemed very down to earth with all of the guys, the most humble. Lane was always friendly to me. He would ask me about my background, about school, how my day was, and I thought he was always really cool. The driving force behind this album was actually Jerry. And I think as we get into Jerry's later stuff, that kind of makes sense. Jerry was the first in and last to leave. You know, he was the guy who was at the studio first thing in the morning. He would be there all day, basically close the place down have lists of what to tackle the next day. He was just all over it. Lane, uh, not so much. And unfortunately, this is credited to his battle with addiction at this time. Again, he's trying to get clean. There are theories that this is when he may have started going off the rails a little bit. There's a really eerie quote by one of Lane's former bandmates, Ron Holt, on addiction. I'm going to read this verbatim because I think it's really appropriate, not only to Lane, but summarizing the perspective of what addiction is actually like. So here's what Ronnie Holt says. There's something that happens when you're an addict, when it becomes bad and you want to stop. And you do want to stop, even if you stay realistic about it and you accept it. Before you acquiesce, there are points where you just try to stop. You draw the line in the sand, but you break it. And then you do it again and you do it repeatedly. You do it so many times that at a certain point in your head, you go, I can't fucking even promise myself what is the fucking use. You start losing faith in your ability. So on the one hand, you find something you can hang on to. Pretty soon what happens is that you're in this new mindset, not too long, that when you finally get clean and you think, wow, I'm really not a conqueror. I'm not this creative person anymore. I'm a beaten down, frightened person. I think that's what Lane became, end quote. That's harsh. That is... Yeah. Mm. Very. So we're going to take a little detour for a song here off of sap we did play one last time that was of course got me wrong which is classic but this one is going to have a, a little treat for you all so i would like you to queue up from the 1992 release sap this one's called right turn i 
Okay, can I just say that's actually like the first one that we listened to that I really liked. Really? Yeah, I like what they did with the layering. I like the simple good. Like that's not, it's not showy. It's not like look what we can do. It is. It's seriously just like here's our vocals. Here's some layering. Here's a guitar. Doesn't sound like there's any progression. It's really nice. Cool. Did you like the surprise vocalist there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Cool. So maybe that's more your, your vibe with Alice. What's your thought, TJ? Up yours, skank. <laughs> oh, I like that side of Alice, too. And that's Cornell, correct? It is. He was a Coming guest in. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Absolutely. That's the thing is, I think I like the more pedestrian, I guess, mundane, quieter, simpler grunge stuff, which is, that's why I covered two of grunge's greatest arguably bands which was you know i covered kurt and i covered chris right and so i think that you know having nirvana be the introduction to your grunge education mm -hmm. puts you into a weird position where it's like yeah you have something like teen spirit but then you have something like eat me hmm. or something in the way or yeah yeah yeah, that that kind of stuff, like the the quieter stuff, not the banging showy stuff. All apologies, things of that nature. Yes, yes. Yeah. More like that speed, I think, might be my grunge speed. Cool. Well, it's certainly, certainly a good one. As we mentioned, Cornell was a guest vocalist. On the album was another guest vocalist, Anne Wilson. She did backing tracks on the track Brother, so she was on that one. And at one point, the band would actually switch up instrumentation. We will get to the end result of that in a couple minutes. It's not good, though, I'll tell you. The photographer from Facelift, Rocky Schneck, was brought in again to do the album cover. He's going to be a staple through all of you know Lane's career, really. And they just wanted a simple cover shot. And if anyone's seen the album for Sap, that's what you get. Schneck actually took some photos prior to going up to Seattle in Griffith Park, where he had a single shot of a bucket hanging from a tree. And that became cover for Sap. Sap was released in February of 92. It was an EP 
that included four listed tracks and one hidden track. So I'll admit when I picked that on our last slot, that this was on my brain because Love Song is a hidden track and it is a strange venture where again, Lane is playing drums. I think Jerry is on, he's singing or he's on bass. Basically everyone's switched up. It's a very strange piece where it's a lot of yelling about little people and their gums bleeding. It's, it's a very peculiar hidden track, but it's there for those wanting to venture there. Now, the lore behind SAP is that originally they didn't want to do any promotion behind it. So Lane had said they wanted to, quote, put the album on the shelves and just see who bought it. Now, I can't picture Columbia going along with this. But the album was conveniently released right around the time of LD, you were just talking about it, Nevermind by Nirvana. So grunge was getting more of a pull, and this really brought sap up. It's sort of a high tide raises all boats concept. So it went gold almost immediately out of the gate. So huge seller. And then they, of course, would start work on their next album for 1992. So Lane, during this time, again, he's in rehab. He's trying to take care of himself. He's listening to more music, he's writing more, and there are several accounts that may think that Lane was starting to lapse a bit. Unfortunately, he started to lose his battle of addiction, which he would unfortunately ultimately lose. So the band would record some demos at the London Bridge studio, and the plan would be to split time in LA and in Seattle to do the next album. Things started getting tense. Lane, as we mentioned, was in treatment, and he had a sponsor. Now, word got out that this sponsor would go around in public and openly declare that he was Lane Staley of Alice in Chains' sponsor. You can't do that. You cannot do that. Well, that's part of being anonymous, right? Yeah. So it was not only inconsiderate, it violates the principles, you know, as you said. And I won't say the name of that sponsor. I will keep the name of that sponsor confidential. But that person would awfully go around and say, I got the lead singer of Alice in Chains. So this really ticked Lane off. He started losing confidence and he started using again. Now, the band is going to L.A. in early 1992. So if we look at a timeline there, we know what happened in Los Angeles in early 92, the King Riots. So the city was in turmoil. In fact, according to Jerry, they got stuck for about a week where they couldn't do anything. They were in LA, the riots were in full swing. And this is the point where Jerry and Lane start working on what is considered the greatest album by Alice in Chains of all time. Later, Lane would go on to describe it as, quote, the diary of an addict. And that album is dirt. Let's kick this one off with a bang. We're going with track one on dirt, and that is Them Bones. Yeah! Oh, what a great song.
Oh. That's the whole song. Oh, yeah. I take it that's not one of your favorites, LD? No. It's okay, though. It's only like two and a half minutes, so I'm good. You're more of a sap type, which is fine. I'm a sap. That's the nicest <laughs> thing you've said to me. Uh, well, let's cap it all off with a fun fact, shall we? Fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. So in that song, Them Bones, you'll notice in the beginning the, ah, that Lane yells. Totally improvised. That was not planned. Lane just went into the booth and started yelling over the guitar riff and they kept it. So that was a completely improvisational moment. Oh, good for him. Hey, it works. The creation of Dirt was during a very tumultuous time. Obviously, there were the King Riots in LA and Lane was undergoing treatment and starting to relapse. So according to one of the album producers, Brian Carlstrom, he said the whole thing that was happening around them was very symbolic of how Lane felt. It was a city on fire, and it was the perfect backdrop for what this album was really about. Again, Lane would later go on to say that this album was the diary of an addict. His usage was starting to come back, sadly enough. There were occasions where one of the base techs, Evan Sheely, actually walked into the restroom and saw Lane shooting up. There was also an incident where Mike Starr and Lane had left, clearly did something, and Mike got violently ill, possibly a very small overdose, but we don't know for sure. A lot of these accounts came from the producers. Mike Starr denied it, but then he actually went back when he was on Celebrity Rehab in 2009. And he said, yeah, you know, we were using at that time. And they weren't the only ones. Jerry actually admitted to using substances. Sean Kinney said he was out partying all night. The producer said everyone came in just looking like crap every day. It even said that Lane would actually break his curfew, go out into where the riots were taking place to buy drugs. If you've seen the footage from that day or those oh, days, yeah. like it is really scary yeah. to see that stuff happening. And like people are getting pulled out of their car. Well, I know specifically one truck driver got pulled out of his truck and mm -hmm. like the streets were not a place where you wanted to be in Los Angeles in 1992. No. And can you imagine like, again, something that he needed so badly, he did that. It's just, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. The first track they actually recorded for the album was Sick Man, and that was written entirely by Lane. Of course, Jerry did the instrumentation music, but Lane was sort of the poet behind it. Another one was called Junkhead, and they said that these tracks were directly taken from Lane's experience in rehab. In fact, they started working on the album in April. Lane didn't even start recording his tracks until much later, and this is due to what they think could be any number of issues. Lane, again, worked in complete isolation. He hated being watched while he was doing his tracks. He hated it. So he actually had them build a, quote, shrine, end quote, in the middle of the sound booth. What they did was they built a wall, kind of a three-sided wall, so you'd have to walk behind it. Lane would set up his chair there. Apparently, the inside of the shrine contained candles, a picture of the Last Supper, and a dead dog preserved in formaldehyde. You Okay. You David. Yes. According to Brian Carlstrom, it was scary. Quote, I tried to never go back there, end quote. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the setting in which Lane did all of his vocal tracks for Dirt. So think about that next time you listen to the album. Despite all of this, Lane was still an absolute powerhouse in the studio. His voice had matured. And this is where, TJ, you were talking about that layered sound and those harmonies are really, I mean, probably the best, save one more album we're going to get to in the next episode. It's Jar of Flies. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I'd say that a dead dog is probably good for acoustics. Yeah, I don't know the numbers on that. I'm going to pull that out completely 
without context. I'm going to use that as my ringer. Got it. When my brother calls me. <laughs> yeah. According to one of the producers, Dave Jordan, they actually ended up stacking even more tracks than they thought. You know, they would average about three to four, and that would be just Lane. So Lane would do like three to four tracks, and then they'd bring in Jerry, and they'd bring in, you know, Sean and Mike to do some other backing stuff. Some songs like Angry Chair, they said had over 16 layers of vocal tracks, most of them just Lane. So Jordan would say, Lane would just tell me what he wanted to do, and he would do it. He was the best I've ever worked with, no doubt. And again, he was kind of a one-take wonder. He'd go back into this creepy shrine, nail it every time. So who gets the nod for the album cover? Of course, it's Rocky Schneck. So he gets called in, and they have a concept. What they want to have is a nude lady buried in the desert, still visible, but it's unclear whether or not she's dead or alive. That was the concept that was kind of pitched to Rocky Schneck. Now... There was a rumor that that model that appears on the cover is Demry Perot. It is not, ladies and gentlemen. Demry actually wasn't offered the part, and she got really upset about it. She was convinced that she would get it, but she didn't. It instead went to a model named Mariah O'Brien. Now, for the shoot, as those of you who know the Dirt album, they actually created the desert. They dug a cutout into the floor and completely sealed it in with clay. So Mariah would lay down. She had short hair at the time, so they put a wig on her. They totally encased her in clay, and then they would do the pictures. So she was there for hours, and she couldn't move at all. So what happened is when they were finally done, she had to go to the bathroom so badly that she just broke out of the clay, and apparently the wig got stuck, and it just pulled right off her head and got stuck in the clay. So there's actually somewhere pictures of just the empty shell with nothing but the hair there, and it that looks is really so creepy. creepy. Yeah, very, very Ugh. fitting for this album. Suffice to say, though, the finished product is nothing less than iconic, and anyone who's seen the Dirt album knows exactly what I'm talking about. You, you cannot forget it. It's, it's really quite an artistic piece. Dirt was released on September 25th of 1992, and as we said earlier, it is largely considered to be the best work of Alice in Chains. The lyrics are haunting, the vocal harmonies are sublime, and just no other album had that dark, brooding tone that Dirt had. The tracks included Them Bones, which we've heard, Damn That River, Rain When I Die, Down in a Hole, Sick Man, Junkhead, Rooster, Dirt, Godsmack, Hate to Feel, Wood, and Angry Chair. So it was a packed album, too. And again, it was very dark. The best of critics would actually call it creepy, and the worst would call it downright evil. And one of the main undertones of this was lane's substance abuse which unfortunately he was pretty much fully relapsing at this quote here's a quote from lane actually i wrote about drugs and i didn't think i was being unsafe or careless by writing about them i didn't want my fans to think heroin was cool i've had fans come up to me and give me a thumbs up telling me they're high i never wanted that to happen he would say when he wrote this that he intended it to be a warning and he would even say it's already too late for me and this is 1992 jeez yeah the album is just meteoric. It debuts at number six. So remember, they made history at number 42. This one hit number six and stayed on the charts for over a hundred weeks. Oof. Yep. And it would go platinum five times over, which if you know that for an album to go platinum once, it has to sell a million units. So mm -hmm. it went five times platinum. To this day, it is considered the most, if not one of the most influential grudge albums of all time. And we are going to close out our episode with an unforgettable song from that album. But first, I'm sure we have some business to take care of. 
we'll do that before we wrap up with our final song here. Yeah, according to Twitter, I just want to let you guys know that Sting has actually been kidnapped. What? Sting has been kidnapped. Are you serious? Like, wait, the singer or yeah. the wrestler? S the singer. Oh, my God. So the police have no leads. Wow. Did you not get I, the joke? No. What's the joke? <laughs> the police have no leads. Oh, my leads. God. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, you're fired. You are fired. <laughs> LD, you're fired. <laughs> Up yours, skank. <laughs> uh, All right. Anyway, if you think that we're amazing and after that joke, how could you not? And you want to give us money, you can do that over at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check us out on Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook, rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. You can check us out on our TikTok at rock and roll heaven pod. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. If I said everything too fast, don't worry. It will be in the show notes linked up there. And please, guys, make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com home of some of the best musical podcasts in the world yeah so i'm sorry guys that's really funny <laughs> uh, i mean were they were they watching every breath you take <laughs> just hope they get my message in a bottle you really sold it though you had us wrapped around your finger <laughs> all right and stop don't stand so close to me <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for checking this episode out. We will try to get another episode out next week. Please bear with us through this you know, time of transition. We're trying to do the best we can to get you guys out all these episodes so that we can move on to our final episode, which is going to be Stephen Sondheim. Then we start our 2021 draft. And if you're confused on the dates, yeah, that's how far behind we are, kids. But we do have one more episode, I do believe, of Lane Staley. Then we'll be moving on to the Stephen Sondheim episodes. And then we'll be starting our draft from last year. So we do have a lot of things in the works. And we're also going to be restructuring our Patreon so that it helps. And we've actually brought on a new editor who will be editing occasionally so that I do not lose my mind. His name is Zach. So please welcome Zach to the fold. But by, by restructuring our Patreon, do you mean uh, including the fact that Will and I are on the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, this is a good place to start. Because it's, I mean, it's still the old host. I, I haven't really touched it because, uh, you know, we want to put out more content. But of course, we need to be settled. And I just started a two-week project. So if anybody is into the true crime realm, please make sure to check out our Instagram. I will post our casting there. That is true crime. That is unexplained phenomenon. It is also... What else is it? Paranormal. It's going to be a really cool show. I can't wait. The concept's awesome and I'm really enjoying working on it. So uh, make sure to check that out too on our Instagram, which is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. I do believe it's, it's Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Yes, Rock and Roll Heaven LT. R-O-C-K-A-N-D-H-E-A-V-E-N-L-T on Instagram and I will post the casting there. Other than that, thank you guys for checking this episode out. We will see you guys next time. That's all I have to say. I love you all. Please be safe and enjoy your Halloween TJ, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience? Up yours, skank. Okay. All uh, right. The more things change. Yeah. All right. I'm going to hand this back over to Will for the close. Cool. Let's just cap this off with, I think, one of the pinnacle pieces on the Dirt album. And this one was actually penned by Jerry. Jerry wrote this song in honor of his father, Jerry Cantrell Sr. As we mentioned way back in episode one or episode two, Jerry Cantrell Sr. was a veteran of the Vietnam War. And 
Jerry Cantrell Jr. actually would say one of his first memories of his father was seeing his dad come back in uniform from Vietnam. He was only three years old at the time, but that stuck with him and it led him to pen this song about the Vietnam War. In fact, in the video, Jerry's father even appears and he's sort of there reflecting on his time in that conflict. And I think you all know what the song is. It is an absolute banger of a song, hits home every time. And that is, of course, we're going to close out with the Alice in Chains classic from Dirt, Rooster. See you guys next time. Also, I love this song. <laughs> yeah.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 